our studies today, and it's, as I said before, it's the last one we're going to do in Revelation this year. We then take a break till in February, because I'll be away in Ethiopia as well for half of January. And John Levers, uh, who you've, some of you have met before, he's going to come and um, give us some preaching relief, if I can call it that, because it's a pleasure to serve, but um, he's going to come and preach during the whole of January. Um, and so we will pick up in our studies in Revelation again in February, uh, probably halfway in February. But never fear, uh, it's a good place to break in, at the end of Revelation chapter 9, because um, Revelation 10, if you go and read a little bit ahead, you'll see it's a great, great picture of the church victorious. And so that's a good way to start the year. And so we'll be coming to that. And you might not believe it, but we're kind of nearly through Revelation, even though we're in chapter 9. Because we work in these cycles of describing what God is going to do and has done in history, and what lies ahead at the judgment, but also when He comes again. And so we've kind of gone through a lot of the judgment that He is going to bring, and, and then the day of judgment will happen, and that we're still coming to. And that's going to be described to us as we come to the bowls of wrath. Can't wait. Actually, I can. Um, And so let's turn and see what God says to us in this passage this morning. Revelation chapter 9. And if you just want to go a little bit ahead to chapter 8, I just want to read them as the introduction. Chapter 8, verse 1 to 5, and then the passage for today, Revelation 9, 13. So, Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 to 5 is our introduction. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. We need to be reminded of this. The Lamb is standing there. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the angel, from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. We pick up from there now. Trumpets have sounded. We are now in the sixth trumpet. So, Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So, the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. 
by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now take note of verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Imagine. Now, if you would turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 46. Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 1 to 12. This is one of the main chapters pointed at in this vision that John sees. Jeremiah chapter 46. The way God judges Egypt and brings His hand of judgment to bear on the wicked. And so let's read what it has to say to us. We're going to read the first 12 verses of chapter 46. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations, about Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Karchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. This is what the Lord says through the prophet. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses. Mount, O horsemen. Take your nations. Take your stations with your helmets. Polish your spears. Put on your armor. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backwards. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this, rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise and will cover the earth. I will destroy cities and the inhabitants. So that's what Egypt said. Advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out, men of Kosh and Pot, who handle the shield, men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. Verse 10. That the, that day is the day of the Lord, God of hosts. A day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated. In other words, it will be satisfied. And drink its full of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Judah, of Egypt. In vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame. And the earth is full of your cry. For warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. In other words, the wicked have fallen by the hand of the wicked. Well, let's see what God says to us in this 
part of his word, Revelation chapter 9. It's the sixth trumpet and be reminded again that it's the judgment of unbelievers described as we listen to what God says through these trumpets. It's judgment against unbelievers. Remember that. Not believers. And today's passage describes a battle of cosmic proportions. It's massive. And in John's vision, he's very much overwhelmed by the size of this army which comes out in judgment. And yet we see that it's only a dry run. It's only a dry run when compared to that final battle with Satan which will happen just before the Lord comes. And we'll talk about that later. It's going to be a massive battle, but it's going to be extremely short. And we'll still come to what God does there. But this imagery that is given to us here is intensified. It's meant to be. It's a step up from where we were with the fifth trumpet and those locusts which came upon the earth. So this picture is supposed to be more dark, more intense than the stinging locusts. Instead of torment and torture, these horsemen and their horses will inflict death. What is this all about? Well, it's a warning, same as all the others. The end is near, but it's not yet year. So repent. The end is here, but it's not yet here. Repent. You're not a believer here today. You need to hear this as well. And so we come to verse 13 and we read there that this voice is featured in John's vision. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I, that is John, heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So John hears a voice in his vision. Now we're not told, is this the Lamb speaking? Because he's before the throne of God and he's in the very presence of God. We're not told if this is the angel standing before the altar referred to in chapter 8 verse 3, who's a great angel of God, who also stands there with heaven-sanctioned authority, but we know that it is a voice of authority from God who speaks out. That's all we know. We can't go further. And this voice says, release the four angels who are prepared for judgment. Where does this voice come from? This voice comes from before the four horns of the golden altar. So what is this altar all about? We spoke about that in chapter 8. This is the altar, the golden altar. It's not the altar of sacrifice, but the altar where the, the prayers of God's people are poured out and where they rise and God hears the voice of His people and the prayers and He starts to answer the prayers of His people. This is the altar where we see this voice coming from. The place where the merciful God meets with man. He hears their prayers. And yet, shockingly, today we see that this is the very same altar where not just mercy comes from, but where judgment comes from. And that's no new thing, is it? Why? Because His mercy always accompanies His judgment. 
His judgment is always accompanied by His mercy. The two are never separated until the end of time when the last trumpet has sounded. Then His mercy and His judgment will be separate. Think about that. Until then, they're always together. There is always time to repent. And so this command goes out, release the four angels, verses 14 to 15. Those angels who have been bound for this very time, the, the day, the year, the day, the hour of what lies for them. So release these angels who are bound. It implies that they are bound against their will. Bound by God's command. And it seems to imply and definitely point to that these are wicked angels who fell with Satan, that they've been bound for a very specific task which God is going to do. And so he says, the time has come. In my sovereign plan, in the plan that I have for, for mankind, in that when the seal was broken, the plan of God is unveiled. In that plan, says the Lord, the time has now come for these bound angels to be released with a judgment that will come on mankind. A very specific judgment held for mankind. And so God gives the command through whoever is there in front of the altar, release these angels. Four angels. And where do they stand? You need to take note of this. Nothing happens in Revelation for nothing. They stand at, bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, he could have chosen the Nile, he could have chosen... Why not the Jordan? That's kind of the river right through Israel. He doesn't. He chooses the river Euphrates. There's a reason for it, you see. Many reasons. Here they are. The river Euphrates had great spiritual significance in Scripture. The Euphrates, if you want to remind yourself, was one of the four rivers which came from the river flowing out of the Garden of Eden. If you need to be, know where that is, that's back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 to 14. A river flowed out of Eden and from it four rivers. And one of those is named as the Euphrates. Secondly, it was the river Euphrates, near the river Euphrates that sin began, right? Near the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. It was in that vicinity. And it was near the place where the first human lie was told. It was the place where the Tower of Babel was built. Evil. Euphrates. It also represents the boundary of the territory of God promised to Israel. If you want to look that up, Genesis chapter 15 verse 18 and also Joshua chapter 1 verse 4. God gave His people a certain area where they would, would live in when, when, as, as, as during the time that they were God's people, and I'll come to that later, on in the history of the world. But the Euphrates was on the boundary of that territory God promised to Israel. And Israel's influence extended to the river Euphrates through the reigns of David and Solomon, specifically mentioned in the Old Testament. There's a third thing here about the Euphrates. It was across the Euphrates that the three world powers lay that oppressed Israel constantly. Who were they? Assyria? Anyone name them? Babylon and Persia. Medo-Persia. 
So it was Assyria, Babylon and Persia. These were the three powers and they were big world powers at that time that kept on oppressing Israel. And God used them in the past to punish His people for their disobedience. They kept doing these raids across the borders of the Euphrates. And so it's really, really important that we see this river Euphrates in the way that it's described to us here. The physical geographical position is not what's at stake here. It is the symbolism behind the river Euphrates. What does it symbolize? The place where evil was, where evil came from. The place that God used powers to come into his own and to punish people for disobedience. That's what it stands for. And so these four angels stand at the river Euphrates, bound there, because judgment is once again coming on people. Do you get the connection now? This was all described to us in Jeremiah chapter 46. And that was the connection this morning. And so these four angels are prepared, says Scripture, for this very time. Read verse 15. It's not there for nothing. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. That's not there for nothing. You see, in God's sovereign plan for mankind, He has a plan and He knows the very millisecond when His judgment, the final day of judgment, will start. But until then, He knows the very millisecond when He will bring various kinds of judgment on the wicked of this earth to punish them and to turn them to Him. He knows the very millisecond when earthquakes break out and millions of people and many thousands are killed. He knows the very millisecond when great tsunamis come over and wash over Japan and many, many millions of people, many thousands are killed. He knows the very time in our future, who knows, when on these rocky isles and the shaky island that we live, who knows what the Lord will do, but He will bring judgment and mercy. He knows the very millisecond when the trumpet of the Lord will sound and the day for the last judgment will be there and then there will be no more time for mercy. He knows in His sovereign plan what happens when. And in His plan, He releases these four angels and He says they are for this very time, in my created time, created for this judgment. And they are to go out and to kill a third of mankind. Now, you guys are experts on thirds already. What does that mean? Come on, what does it mean? He's not going to kill everyone. There's still time to repent. Some are going to survive. That's what it means. The hand of God held back to some degree to show mercy. He killed only a third. And so, what does God do through this picture this morning? He uses war to warn the wicked to repent. Full judgment will come. But it is now held back until the day of judgment comes, which will be described in chapters 15, 16 and 20 of Revelation. And we'll get to those. Patience. And so, let's look at this picture that's described as this army. We know what they are about to do through these angels. But what is this army that is raised against the wicked, those who are disobedient before the Lord? Verses 16 
to 19. This is what it says. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. He didn't hear the number twice 10,000 times 10,000. He heard the number of this army. The thunder of it. The sound. Verse 17. This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. So what do we firstly hear about this army? We see that it is an army with great magnitude. And John names this army which he cannot count. And so he names the largest number he can. It is twice 10,000 times 10,000. We know about 10,000 now. It's a very great number. So it's twice a very great number is a very great number, right? It's without count, says John. I saw it in my vision. And in my vision I was overwhelmed by this army. I just not saw but heard. And so what did he see? And here, if you know anything about English and English study, there's a piling up of metaphors. Alright? There's description after description after description after description and the one effect is to overwhelm. And so be overwhelmed and look overwhelmed, please. This isn't a scientific textbook description. Please don't take out your pencil and jot down the horse was this, the rider had that, A plus B equal. Just leave it. Be overwhelmed by this picture. Put your notebook aside. Listen to what John saw. You see, this army has one purpose. Destruction. Killing. Released to bring judgment. We see perfect unity here between the horses and the riders. The riders are described as breastplates, the colour of fire. What do we know about fire now? Red, judgment, smoke, or hyacinth if you've got an older Bible. Dark grey, dark blue, colour of smoke, judgment, brimstone or sulphur if you've got an older Bible. Yellow. Judgment. Where did we come across that? Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you read further on, the descriptions of hell. And so that's the riders dressed. And all they say is judgment. And they're on horses. And all the horses describe is judgment. Why? Because the description of the horses, they breathe out what? Fire. Smoke. Brimstone, perfect destruction machines, and in their tails are what in in his vision look like serpents' heads which bring destruction, which bite with venom, which wound. Okay? In the last day of judgment, and before that, don't go and look for horses with tails and bring out your little textbook. God is saying he is bringing his perfect judgment on the wicked. But he only kills a third. Repent! There is still time, he says. 
What's the message here? The message through this picture, and I'll get to the last verse, I haven't forgotten about it. The message here is that through this entire period, extending from the first to the second coming of the exalted Lord Jesus, we are in that time now, the one who rules all things according to the scroll of God's decree which has been opened and shown God's plan for mankind, God during this time will again and again punish unbelievers and bring warnings across their way, including those who persecute the church, both in the past and those who are now persecuting the church all over the world. And if you live in a sanitized world where no Christians are persecuted, switch on your TV, have a look, read magazines, Voice of the Martyrs. It's real. God is bringing judgment and He will inflict disasters of every kind on mankind. Think of what happened to Japan. Think of what happened to Christchurch. It's God behind this. And what is He doing? He's warning mankind and specifically the wicked, turn to Me and repent. I'm punishing you now, but the punishment that lies ahead is nothing compared to what you are now experiencing. Repent. It's a warning. And He brings these disasters in every single sphere of our lives. And His warning will come to them in their personal lives. It will come to them in their spiritual lives. People will feel lost without the Lord. They will go down the road of darkness and blackness without God until they cry out to Him to help them. They might be confronted with death. They might be confronted with sicknesses which touch their very beings. But He will bring His disaster, His warning on their lives. It is the hand of Almighty God, none other. It's not just your bad luck, as I hear so often. It is God warning, turn to me and be saved. And the blood of the martyrs and those who have died because of the witness of Jesus Christ, their blood is precious in the sight of the Lord and when He brings punishment on the wicked, He has already started answering those prayers. He promised them. Chapter 8. And in His time He answers. And He will continue to answer those prayers. And what was their prayer? It wasn't for, Lord bring justice for us, It was, Lord, bring justice for your kingdom's sake by our deaths. God is already answering that prayer by punishing the wicked and giving them a chance to come to Him. And yet, even though not all of them are killed, what does verse 20 and 21 say? Did the wicked repent? Do they repent today? What does he get back? One word. Defiance. In the face of overwhelming judgment, the wicked raise their fists and defy God and carry on deliberately doing what they do, even with more strength. Do you see how wicked wickedness is? 
It so corrupts the soul that you cannot escape its clutches by yourself. And that is why we need Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ had to come with supernatural power and He had to intervene where we could not help ourselves. He had to bring life where there was in us only death. How can a dead person help themselves? Christ intervened. And so the Lord, in the face of overwhelming judgment, gets defiance. There's no repentance here. And John is so overwhelmed by this, he says, they did not even repent. In the face of this, they did not even repent. But in their futility, they carried on chasing their gods. And then he starts mentioning all their sins. What does he mention here? The rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not, and the word in the Greek is, did not even repent of the works of their hands, nor giving up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot feel or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders. So now he gets to very specific things. And their sorceries, or their sexual immoralities, or their theft. What's he describing here? He's describing this deliberate continuing of sinning in the face of God, even though God is bringing His hand of judgment on people. And in spite of all the warning voices of wars and disasters, mankind in general does not repent. Where else did we hear of that? Back in Genesis. Anyone? Noah. God looked at mankind and they'd become so wicked that He was sorry He had created them. And so He decided to destroy and to keep a remnant for Himself. What is that a picture of? The whole of human history, which is again repeating. And one day He will destroy all those who do not believe in Him and He has a remnant for Himself. Nothing's new. It's just repeated. How many warnings do we need as mankind? As an unbeliever here today, if you're sitting here, how many warnings do you need before you will turn to Jesus Christ and be saved? You've had the whole of history to see. You see, mankind in his sin is foolish and stubborn. Our society today is foolish and stubborn. We continue in our headlong and our hard-hearted Pursuit of wickedness of every description. We even legislate for it. He describes they carry on with their murders. Now, if you remember, what was Jesus' definition of murder? Not just the physical act of killing someone, but anger in your heart towards someone, alright? So, they carried on with all their murders, all their sorceries, the Greek word is they use the word pharmakon. Anyone recognize anything there? Pharmakon? Pharmacy, pharmaceuticals. That's what it means here. Alright? They continued with their pharmakon. The word is used drugs, but that's not the only one. It's a wider term. It's a word used to describe poisons, amulets, it's good luck charms, seances, witchcraft, incantations, magic spells, contacting mediums, 
everything to do with worshipping of gods. They carried on with these things. They worshipped their gods. Pharmakon. They carried on with their immorality. The word used here specifically is the word porneia. Anyone know what that is? Specifically sexual sin. Including all its perversions. Now, they had a lot of perversions in the time of Paul and the time of John and the time of the New Testament. So, nothing's new. It's just got new terms today. They carried on with their fornication, their adultery, their rape, their, their homosexuality and etc. They carried on with their thefts of all kinds. Sound terrible? It is. It's already happening here. This beautiful country of ours. We are in the time when God is judging and warning and yet as a society we carry on pursuing wickedness. We've legislated to allow wickedness to happen now. Prostitution. Abortion. Let's call it what it is. Killing of babies. Voluntary sexual identification. Reclassification of what I think I am as a man or a woman or in between. What's next? Legalization of marijuana. Now you think that's not much. Well, it is. It's described what we've just looked at. Allowing euthanasia. We know that's next. Just give the government time. We allow things in our own community in Wanganui. Once a year we have a travelling band of people who come and establish themselves nice and freely on our riverbank. The gypsies. What do they bring with them? Mediums, fortune tellers. And as I heard one mother say, Oh, it's just innocent fun. We're going to take our kids along there. They've got candy flasks. They do. Do you see how normal things are? We continue in our pursuit of wickedness, not in Iraq, in Wanganui. God's judgment at work. Do we see it around us? I tell you, the more I've been studying this book, the more I see God's hand at work already. Somehow, because I didn't understand this book before, I've never seen that. The Lord is opening my eyes. I hope He opens your eyes too. Where will this list stop? Where will society's defiance against God stop? What is society's defiance? What is society made of? It's made up of individuals like you and me. We equal society. And so what is this? It is our defiance against God. And so as we sit here before Him, are you and I defiant before God? If you're an unbeliever here today as well, you come under this description. You are in defiance against God because you are not in a relationship with His Son, which is a saving relationship. And so, society's sin is our sin. 
I want to ask you today, have you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life? And if you think you're a believer, I want to ask you this question. Have you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life? Otherwise you're not a believer. Don't kid yourself. If you hear His voice today, do not harden your heart. That is what these people were doing in this vision. In the face of God's judgment, they were hardened to God. If you do harden your heart today, then this description of defiance in the face of God's continual and His daily mercy to you is a picture of God's judgment that lies in store for you too. God's Word says this to you. I'm a messenger. And as a result of man's defiance, the wrath of God will be poured out with finality on all the wicked. And we'll come to that when the bowls of wrath are described. And it will all culminate in the day of judgment, chapter 15, 16 and 20. And a holy God will not be swayed. He will not change his mind from bringing judgment justly on all sin. Because he's a holy God. And He will punish every vestige, every little speck of sin. That's the passage. I don't want to end there though. All the songs I chose today were songs of hope. The scripture reading we've got now is going to be a scripture reading of hope. Because we don't have to end here. As believers we know our hope is elsewhere. We are not going to come under this judgment. We are going to experience the hand of mercy and love of our God. And we're going to be so overwhelmed by it, you're not going to be able to sing with that great crowd. You are going to be in tears of joy. I want to ask you this this morning. Two statements. In two questions. Do you worship Jesus Christ as Lord? Personally. Jesus and His kingdom. Do you serve Jesus and His kingdom or do you serve you and Satan's kingdom? Or perhaps you've been deceived into worshipping idols of your own making and Satan who is behind them. Perhaps part of the deception is that today we have restricted idolatry, the term idolatry, to the worship of literal idols. So when we visit the East as tourists, we see people bowing to idols. Well, that's idol worship. We have idol worship amongst us. What is idol worship? Idol worship is whatever we are committed to do more than God. That's an idol. What is pulling you more than God in your life? There's an idol. And that includes worship of ourselves and our own interests. That's idol worship. Secondly, I want to leave with you this statement, and it's no question. God's sovereign plan is at work. 
The reality of this world is that many around us will die in their sin. That's what God says. Wide is that road that leads to destruction. And there are many on it. But narrow is the way that leads to salvation. And few find it. Yes? And so the reality of God's Word is today that in the light of God's sovereign plan at work, many will not find the kingdom. And so when we go into the world and amongst your colleagues and your friends and family, many of them will not come to know Jesus Christ. Many of them will die in their sin. Sinful men and women will continue to resist God to the limit, no matter how much hurt they hurt themselves in the process. And that is the world that Christ calls us to go into. Do you see why we need to be armoured for the fight? Do you see why we need to go in the strength of Jesus Christ? Because if we don't, and if we are heart for the lost, and if we see all the lost around us, we'll be overcome by sadness. We'll just go sit down and cry in a dump. But the Lord wants us to be soldiers who take out a message valiantly, strongly, into this world that is dying. He has said that many will hear, but not hear. However, He has also promised that there will be some who will hear. And so we as believers need to be taking out that message that Jesus saves. And if you come to Jesus Christ, He will forgive your sin and you will find new life in Jesus Christ. And if you turn around and face away from your sin and look to Jesus Christ and bow to Him as Lord in your life, then you too will find that salvation. Some will hear that message. And we are to be the ones who are the even the ones who take out that message. My Greek escaped me. We need to take out that evangel. That's what Christmas is about. It's not about the presence. It's about taking out the message that Jesus saves. His son has come. He'll be back soon. We are the ones who take out that message. And therefore we are to persevere even when we see no results. Now, I don't know about you, I know there are a few of you here, you've been praying for those in your families, loved ones, friends, colleagues, who still do not know Jesus Christ, and you've been praying for them for 85 years or more, and still nothing. Pray again. God hears the prayers of His saints. He answers in His own time. And He has sent you into the world to take that message and to pray for us. Yes? And can we do this on our own? No. Because if I ask for something more than three times and it doesn't happen, I give up. I'm only male. We come before the Lord and we continue to ask. We continue to come before Him. And He will hear our prayers. And so we need superhuman strength. We need divine strength, otherwise we'll give up before our task is done. Therefore, where does our help come from? Yes? From the Lord. Not in my own theological abilities, not in my own battery strength. Our help comes from the Lord. And so at the end of this series for this year, I want us to stand. And as part of the sermon, which is a sermon of you as well, I want you to stand. And as a congregation, we're going to affirm where our help comes from. Alright? I haven't said Amen yet. 
You are part of the sermon. So let's stand. And as we end this time together around God's Word, let's affirm as believers where our help comes from. And if you're not a believer, you need to look at this and fall on your knees and ask Jesus to be your Saviour. And if you need to see me and ask me to help you, I will do so. Come and see me. Don't leave it. You might not have another day. Let's stand before the Lord and as believers, affirm our faith in Him together. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And God's people together say, Amen. Let it be so, Lord. Lord, give us a vision of you on your throne during this week. As we leave this place, as we enter into the world, those who will hear and those who won't, thank you that we know that you know who will hear. And we leave that in your just hands. May we be faithful in the task you've assigned to us. May we go out with a saving message of the gospel to those who have not yet heard and leave them in the hands of Almighty God. May we continue to pray for them faithfully and leave the answering of that prayer to you. And may we go out in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit who is upon us, because without you in our lives, we will fail. Go with us in this week, we pray, in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.